So we're in chapter 5, verse 1, and as I just mentioned during our prayer, the opening line here, the opening statement, immediately turns our eyes to Christ. And he, Paul points to Christ as a champion for us. You see those words, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Christ, the Messiah, the long-anticipated king from the Old Testament, the deliverer, he has come and he has delivered. He has set us free. And that phrase gets my attention, that all of a sudden there's this pop of freedom that is truly ours. When Christ came into the world, he came with the mission of setting us free from bondage so that we could be free. So I have two questions at this point as we lean into this. The first question is this, what does it mean that a Christian is free? What does it mean that a Christian is free? Well, back in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul had said this, Christ redeemed us. Redemption is freedom language. It's a slave being bought and being set free. So Christ redeemed us. We were slaves. And what were we set free from? From the curse of the law. So if you are a Christian, you are free from the curse of the law. What is that curse of the law? Well, the law is the moral standard of God's holiness. It's summarized by the Ten Commandments. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have broken every one of those ten. We have refused to follow God. We have sought other things at times in life. We've elevated people, turned them into treasures, turned things into treasures. We've had idols in our heart that have replaced God where he should be. And we've coveted, we've envied, we've lied, we've stolen, we've lusted, we've disobeyed our parents. There's God's law for us. And when we stand before him based on that standard, we are guilty and we're deserving of the curse of the law. And what is the curse of the law? The curse of the law is God's judgment, God's righteous, right judgment upon our lives. And what we need now is if we're standing in that place of judgment, we need freedom. We need to be redeemed. And so that's the freedom that Christ has won for us or achieved for us. He has come to give us freedom. That's what we have right now. We are standing as the recipients of what Christ has done for us, not what we've been able to do. Christ delivered us, swooped in, put his arm around us when we received him by faith, and delivered us from that curse. Okay, but now that we are free, my second question is this. What is a right response for those who have trusted Christ and have received freedom? What is the right response for someone who has said, Christ, I need you. I know that I can't meet the standard of holiness. I never could. You have come in. You have saved me. What is my right response to the freedom that Christ has given? Well, verse 1 says this, stand firm in that freedom. 
Stand firm in that freedom. Like, soak it up. Enjoy it. Don't drift away from it. Don't return to your slavery. So here's how Paul lays out this passage. Verse 1 is the dominating thought for verses 1 through 6. So here's your freedom. Stand firm in it. Don't submit yourself again to the yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery is trying to earn your own freedom by measuring up to God. That's a yoke. That's a burden that you cannot carry. So Paul would say, don't go into that yoke of slavery. Don't put that on your neck and plow life with that. And what he does now, verses 2 through 4, is he explains what life in slavery looks like. Well, look at that. And then he comes back with verses 5 and 6 and points out positively what life is in terms of freedom in Christ. Okay, so the first section here in verses 2 through 4, you could say is maybe negative. Verses 5 through 6 are positive. What are the consequences of living or rejecting the freedom of Christ? What are the consequences of rejecting the freedom of Christ? Well, verses 2 through 4, this is where Paul comes and he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and circumcision now is going to be, in your mind, think, works of the law. That's, that's what the original audience was looking at. Works of the law. I've got to do these works, works, works in order to earn God's favor. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Okay, so what is the first consequence of rejecting freedom and trying to earn your freedom by the law? Number one, Paul says this in verse two. Christ is of no advantage to you. Literally, Christ is useless if you put your trust in good works. And you might say, how do I know if I'm putting my trust in good works? Here's one sign. Do you feel burdened? Do you feel like you never measure up? So what's happening when I feel like I never measure up? Where is my attention right now when I never measure up? It's on myself. I never measure up. That's one sign that you know that you're not trusting Christ, that your eyes are not turned to Christ. He will be of no advantage to you. As we've gone throughout this book, we have seen that the Galatians were trying to find spiritual freedom from judgment by doing certain works, by keeping portions of the Old Testament law, for the Old Testament Jew, circumcision was a command. Under the New Covenant, the era of Christ, we'll see you later on, especially if you're new to the Bible and Christianity, circumcision or no circumcision, doesn't matter. It was just a mark that identified God's people in the Old Testament. 
And so what these Galatian teachers were now coming in and falsely teaching was, hey, you got to pull this law forward from the Old Testament that marked the people of God, and, and that's what marks and is part of your salvation now. Some of you might look at, like, the Old Testament law. You're like, okay, we're living in 2024. I have never thought about following the Old Testament law as a way to find freedom in Christ. And I get that. However, do you find yourself frustrated, even worried and fearful, that you might not be good enough for God? Does that, does that ever burden you, especially those of you who have come out of legalistic backgrounds? Does it ever worry you or frustrate you that God might be looking at you with disappointment because you aren't doing enough good works to please him? You just haven't cashed in enough good works for him to smile down upon you. Do you go about life trying to be righteous with the thought that hopefully someday you will have done enough good things that in God's sight, you'll eventually feel free from your sins of the past. So if I just put in enough coins of good works, then this feeling, this this guilt and shame of things in the past will be gone. When you begin to trust in your works, your faith is shifting away from Christ and the security that he brings to yourself. And look, if I'm trusting in myself, I'm a mess. Don't trust in me. And I think you could all say the same thing. If you trust in yourself... You're a mess. There's no guarantee on that. And you're becoming the focal point then of your own emotions and your thoughts. So I just want you to think about this for a moment. I have found it to be true in my own life. And I think I find it to be true as a biblical principle. I don't want my emotions and my experience to be authoritative for you, but I want God's word to be authoritative here for you. I guess what I'm saying is I see it in my life. When I am focused on myself, I am a mess, which is an indicator that I'm not truly focused and trusting in Christ. Christ is our value, not what we can do. There's a story of a man who had a baseball signed by Babe Ruth, and he had that baseball and wanted to cash it in at one point, He looked at the signature on the ball, and he could see that it was very faded. And so what he did was thought, it's not going to be valuable if it's that faded. I need to take out my pen and trace over all of the letters in Babe Ruth's name. So that's what he did. Very carefully. It looked really good on the surface. To you and me, you would have thought, man, that's Babe Ruth's signature. Takes it in tries to cash it in. The problem is that the specialist was able to spot it a mile away. And so when the owner got it appraised, the ball, which would have been worth a lot of money with just the original signature, was worthless. Why was it worthless? It was worthless because he tried to add value to it. He was doing the work of it. And now think about it. If the owner would have been paid a lot of money for that ball, He could have gone around to folks and said, hey, here's what I did. 
I took Babe Ruth's signature and I added my ink to it and it's worth a whole lot more now. But that's not how it works. The original signature was the advantage. That was the advantage. But it is of no advantage when the guy adds his own ink. And here we are with our life and Christ is here saying, you're mine if you've trusted in me. You're mine. Now stand in your freedom here. And what happens is we lose sight of what is advantageous to us, Christ, and we go into our own works and say, how can we add works? How can we add actions? How can we add deeds to this so that I might be winsome, so I might be secure in my relationship with God? If that's the case, what you're doing is making Christ of no advantage to you. Second consequence of not standing in the freedom of Christ is that you must be morally perfect. You must be morally perfect. And this is the burden and weight that people feel, especially in legalistic circles. Everyone who stands before God, if you're going to reject or dismiss Christ, you have to meet God's standard of perfect obedience. So either you stand before God with the gift of Christ's righteousness that you have received by faith, just receiving it as a gift from him, or you stand before him, you stand before God having a righteousness of your own that you've kept the law perfectly. Those are the two options. Either you receive Christ's perfection or you're going to have to do it yourself. So Phil Riken, in his commentary on Galatians, he talks about an old Jewish rabbi. He was reading through the Old Testament, comes to a passage in Ezekiel that talks about a man. Ezekiel's talking about a man who is righteous and does what is right and just. And as the rabbi's reading this, he begins weeping because he realized that righteousness does not come by doing one part of the law perfectly. It would only come to someone who kept the whole law perfectly. He was devastated because even as a good Jewish rabbi, the rabbi knew it's absolutely impossible for me to keep all of those lists, all of those commands, and do it perfectly. None of us can. Only one person did. And that was Jesus. And this is the message of the gospel. Jesus came, and he was perfect, and he is offering his life of perfect obedience, not as something to be earned by any of us, but as a gift. And so Christ looks at us and says, you're in need of deliverance. You can't earn it for yourself. You can't break the chains yourself. You can't become perfect. I've done it for you, so you're either going to accept my perfect obedience of the law, or you're going to try it yourself. You have to be morally perfect. It's impossible. Third consequence, if you're not going to accept Christ and the freedom that he gives, is that you are severed from Christ and fallen away from grace. Look at verse 4. He says this, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, 
you have fallen away from grace. So again, these points overlap, but Paul's point here is that when someone tries to justify themselves by doing good works, you are clearly separating yourself from Christ by choosing the path of works. Because you're choosing the path of works for your life, you're not only separating yourself from Christ, but you've fallen from grace. And I don't think that Paul here is saying that you can receive grace and then you can just sort of like have it leave you and you have like lost your salvation. I think he is just making the point that if the Galatians, those who received this letter first, or any of us who've heard the good news of Jesus, and then we walk down a path of believing in good works to save us, we're not trusting Christ. We've never experienced really the goodness of grace. Now, I think there's something here for us to learn. Where is Paul clearly pointing us in this whole section? Where is he pointing our hope for deep freedom, for like soul freedom that goes down to the depths of who we are? Where is he directing us? Many people, maybe even some of you, have come in here today And you think that the goal of Christianity is moral rehabilitation. You think Christianity is that that kind of idea that will just sort of clean me up on the outside, make me a little more happy because I'm doing the right thing. Well, notice what Paul says in this whole section. If moral rehabilitation just trying to be a good person, if that's your goal, Paul is saying, you are no better off. You are still fallen away from Christ. You don't know the sweetness of grace. And it's just religion for you then at that point. And religion and morality, that won't free you. So now we're stuck with the three consequences again. Paul is not pointing us to more religion. By showing us these consequences, the natural result or conclusion that we should come to is, I can't do that. Where should my attention be pointed? My attention, my faith has to go towards Christ. And when we are pointing towards him with our hearts, truly trusting him, there is a freedom that starts to come into our souls. We are free from the yoke of slavery that says you have to earn salvation by your good works. And when we're free from that way of thinking, we're also free from guilt and shame of our sins in the past. Because we now know that if our good morals don't define us, neither will our sins. If our good morals here don't define us as Christians, here's the good news, Christians, neither does your sin. If you are free from the curse of the law, your sin does not define you. We can actually accept what we did in a way. By that I mean, we can say, yep, 
I did that sinful action. I said that sinful lie. I can't do anything in my own to reverse time and undo what happened in the past, no matter how many good works I do. I can't cover it up with a new... I can't take that life and just cover it up with a new signature, with good works. But Christ has freed me from that sin. And now my life has the signature of Christ all over it. So Christian, this is like a, this is a freeing truth here. So many people are in bondage and in this kind of slavery of what I did in the past is like this huge billboard that follows me around, at least in my conscience, at least in my own thoughts. It just follows me around. And I try not to tell too many people about it because I don't want them to think about me that way. Okay. You're in slavery, right? And Christ is saying, if good works and trying to do good works won't define you, I've got good news for you. Only I can define you. Only I can give you a new identity. You're mine. Your sins put you under the curse, but now you're no longer under that curse. I have set you free. So the Christian, now you can say, yep, I sinned. I don't like the consequences of that sin. I don't want to do it again. It was a mess. But that's not who I am. I'm in Christ. He has bought me. I trust him. I am free in him. That's why Paul could talk about his past. I didn't put it up there on the screen for you. Listen to what he says. He says in 1 Timothy 1, formally, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. He was an opponent of Christianity. He couldn't stand Christ. Is that what defines the Apostle Paul? When you think about the Apostle Paul, is that what defines him? Nope. It's part of his past. And he knows it's part of his past, but he knows that there's something greater that defines him, and in this, he finds liberty. He goes on to say this. But I received mercy, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So you see, to stand in the freedom of Christ means that we are bringing all of who we are, all of our sins, to Christ, and we trust that he truly takes it upon himself, and he declares us to be free from the judgment that that sin would have brought to us. And when that happens, by faith, you can live in true freedom in your soul. It's not that we don't regret those things like I mentioned earlier. It's not that those things don't have consequences. But those things, Christian, do not define you. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Now stand free in Christ. So verses 2 through 4, one path. Those are the consequences of rejecting Christ and the freedom. Christ will be of no advantage. You're going to have to be morally perfect. You're severed from Christ, fallen away. 
But verse 1 is saying, stand firm. How do we do that? How do we stand firm in this freedom that Christ has given to us? Well, now verses 5 and 6 pick up that thought, and he moves us into a positive direction. So verses 5 and 6, Paul says, for through the Spirit. Now listen to all this language and think, does this, does this mean standing firm in freedom? Yes. Paul says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right, now, in this section, four important words, phrases that speak to how we can stand firm, and that will guide us through verses 5 and 6. So starting in verse 5, the first word that I see is the Spirit. Paul says, it's through the Spirit that we are going to live. We stand in this freedom through the Spirit. And you say, what's the importance of the Spirit? Like, how is that connected to Paul's overall thoughts throughout the book? Well, back in Galatians 3, verse 3, he said this, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And his point is that salvation starts by the Spirit coming into your life. The Spirit begins the work of salvation, and then he follows up. Are you so foolish to think that what started by the Spirit can now be completed by your own attempts at good works? The flesh? Earlier in the service, Pastor Darren was telling us that we were dead at one point. We all came into the world spiritually dead. Dead people cannot wake themselves up. Ephesians 2, there we were. And what Paul is saying is that God uses his spirit in our lives to wake us up to the glory of who Christ is so that we might say, yes, I need him. I need him. I can't do this on my own. I see my sin. I see the standard of perfection. I see that I deserve judgment. This is who God is. He's holy, and yet he loves me. He sent his son into the world as the atoning sacrifice for my sin. The spirit all of a sudden causes your spiritual eyes to pop open. I was dead to that. Didn't notice it. And now I do. And we live through the Spirit. You have the Spirit of God who is alive in you, helping you live in spiritual freedom now. What started by the Spirit can't be completed by the flesh. We live by the Spirit right now. All right, so the Spirit of God is going to help you and I stand in freedom. Secondly, he moves on in verse 5, and he says, For through the Spirit, and notice... There is a human element here by faith. What is faith? Faith is simply taking God at his word. We live by what God has told us. And what has God told us? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, from God's judgment. And how does that faith lead us? It leads us to word or phrase number three, we wait Okay, so living in freedom now, for through the Spirit, by faith, he says, now we wait. When you think about waiting, 
It has the idea of being focused that something is going to come. My attention is geared towards something that's not here yet, but it's going to be coming. What is it that we're waiting for? He says that we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And you think, wait a second. I thought we were already declared righteous. We are declared righteous, but are you righteous? <laughs> I mean... Can you look at your life this last week and say, I've arrived. I'm sin-free. Righteousness just oozes through me right now. No. So what he says here is we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. The word hope in the Bible is not this sort of wishful, whimsical thinking. The word hope is confidence. We are waiting for the confidence of righteousness so that someday... When we stand before God, he is going to glorify us and sin will be no more. So what we have been declared right now to be by the gift of Christ, we have the gift of Christ upon us. We receive it in faith and Christ says, okay, God says, because you've received the gift of Christ by faith, I declare you as righteous. Yet we go through life and I know I'm, I know I'm a sinner. I've sinned this last week, probably sinned this morning already. If I think about it, something, you know. I know I'm not righteous yet. That's coming when we are glorified. So, for through the Spirit, I'm living by the Spirit, I have faith that God is going to make me completely righteous in the eternal state. Um, he moves on with one more statement here. And that's found in verse 6 here. We wait for the hope of righteousness, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right, so here is our life now as we stand firm in this freedom. It starts with the Spirit, we're living by faith, we're waiting for the hope of righteousness, and then he finishes out this list here by saying that, our lives are going to be characterized by love. What matters now is that the kind of faith that you have in Jesus Christ is the kind of faith that affects you in such a way that you are able to love God and love others. Why is that? Because biblical faith... Let's go back to the beginning. Where is the person who is living in bondage, where is their attention focused? On themselves. What can I do? How can I earn my way into heaven? When somebody is practicing biblical faith now, where is their attention focused? On Christ. Faith, biblical faith, naturally turns our attention away from ourselves. Someone enamored with Christ, you're going to see a selfless person. This kind of faith guards us from being self-focused. And when we are no longer self-focused, what are we free to do? When we're no longer self-focused, we're actually free to live in love. We're free to focus on other people because like, that focus on ourselves is gone. I'm no longer the center of my life. Religion, 
Now, here's, if you can just keep this in your mind, religion and legalism does the exact opposite. It naturally focuses the attention on yourself of how am I doing? What am I doing to earn God's approval? The attention is always focused on yourself, and that kind of thinking leads down this path where naturally you are not going to be able to love others well because you're always focused on yourself. Your view of Christ is so much more than just your view of Christ. It affects the way that you live. I came across this uh, illustration when I was studying for this sermon. An old poor farmer who had grown up in the country, just content with what he had, he loved his king. He was enamored with his king. Loved the way his king governed, loved the way the king protected the kingdom. And so this farmer is growing carrots and grows the largest carrot in the kingdom, pulls it out of the ground, and says, I want to give this carrot to my king. And so he lugs this carrot into the capital, into the palace, into the king's court, and just gives this carrot to the king. This is the largest carrot ever. And the king receives it with gladness and says, because you've given that to me, because you love me, I'm going to give you an extra acre of land. and You can farm and have more carrots. There's a nobleman that's standing in the court. And he thinks to himself, well, if that little poor farmer gives the king a carrot, what will I get if I give the king my best horse? So he goes home and finds his biggest horse, brings it into the palace, brings it in front of the king, presents the king with his best horse. And the king looks at the horse and he can see through everything that's going on. And he goes, thank you. And he walks away. And the nobleman is just stuck there like, what in the world? And the king turns around and says, the farmer came to give me the carrot. But you came to give yourself the horse. Where was the focus? The focus of the nobleman was continually upon himself and he wanted what he wanted. He wasn't focused on the king at all. And therefore, he was enslaved to himself. Robust faith in Christ says, I'm not focused on myself. Everything about who I am belongs to you. And what you give to me, like, I just, I love you. When that kind of faith is at the center of who we are, naturally our attention is off of ourselves and we're able to escape the bondage of ourselves and we're able to love others freely. Faith working with love. Look down at verse 13 if you've got your Bibles open in Galatians 5. He continues this and we'll pick this up in the you know, coming sermons. He says, for you are called to freedom. That's salvation freedom right there. You are called to freedom, and look, look at how he applies it there. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Someone who has come to faith in Christ and trusted Christ for their salvation, this will be part of your life. 
you're going to live through the Spirit. I can't do this on my own. I'm going to live by faith in Christ. Christ, you've done it for me. Like, I'm waiting for the hope of righteousness. My eyes are forward-looking to what God is going to do. And I'm going to be able to love. Let me close with this. Have you seen the two- or three-year-old who is standing in a hallway crying his or her eyeballs out because their mommy just left them and had to go to another room? Maybe down here in the nursery. Maybe you've experienced a parent as you're walking away from your nursery or your kids down in the nursery. All they can think about is, I want my mommy. They want their comfort, they want their security, their circumstances, all of that to be just right, and they are practically inconsolable. All they can think about is what they want. Then along comes a really smart grandma. And what does grandma have in her hand? Um, You'll have to go along with the illustration here at church. The grandma has a beautiful, smooth, silky ice cream cone and walks up to the two or three-year-old. And what happens to that child at that moment that has been crying his or her eyeballs out inconsolably? All of a sudden, the eyeballs pop wide open, the tears go away, and he reaches out for what is better than what he was thinking he could have in that moment. He reaches out for the ice cream. If you are hurting, afraid, constantly worried about your relationship with God, constantly worried about how you are being assessed by others, here's the question. Is it possible that you are focused too much on yourself and on your circumstances? Are you a slave to those things? Christ is the sweeter path for you. Faith in Christ changes everything about us. If we keep our faith focused on him, we find a freedom from guilt. We find a freedom from ourselves. This freedom comes, it's like the trickle-down effect of completely trusting in him because our eyes are now focused on him. And Paul says, stand firm in that. Stand firm with your eyes focused on Christ, not on your works. That's going to be slavery. And so the question that we close with is, are you free? Are you truly free? Christ says, come to me. Believe me. You'll stand firm in freedom there. Let's pray.